0: Hey, thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. Here at Reveal, our mission is simple. Find God, find others, and find yourself. For more information, visit us online at revealvineyard.com. We're on chapter 13 of John's gospel. Uh, Remember, gospel simply means good news, and so this is the good news according to John. John was a disciple of Jesus, and he wrote out of his firsthand experience uh, of his time with Jesus, and we get the uh, opportunity to read through uh, what he experienced firsthand. Now, John 13 marks a change in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, The mood changes in chapter 13. Jesus is nearing his final hours, death quickly approaches, the crowds have departed, there are no more uh, free catered lunches for 5,000 plus people, Uh, the miracle healing services are a thing of the past, no more calming the storms, no more mountainside teachings, no more awing people with his wisdom and insight, he is 24 hours away, uh, really, from being in the tomb. And so, around the corner is his betrayal, his arrest, nails-piercing skin, thorns biting flesh. uh, And this is what uh, we start to see in John 13 moving forward. It's known as the upper room discourse. The crowds have departed. It's Jesus and his 12 disciples, the 12 that would be given the task to change the world. And so we get a glimpse into what Jesus had to say in his last few hours on earth, what he imparted into uh, his disciples. When you think of John 13, think of the um, Upper Room Discourse, think of a deathbed speech of sorts, because that's what it was like. It would be if you gather your family and friends closest to you and you impart your final words. He's giving his final thoughts, his final instructions, uh, and there was a lot writing on it. These guys would be charged to take his message and cause it to explode throughout the earth. So now we look at, well, how does Jesus leave a lasting impact on his disciples? When it's your last few hours, what, what is it that you say or that you do that burns this memory into their brains, never to be forgotten? Maybe it is a mind-rattling sermon. Maybe he reveals the mysteries of the universe to them, or maybe he does such an awe-inspiring miracle that they are left gasping right if you thought this healing stuff of these guys was good well, watch what I'm about to do now and you know turns Judas into a frog or something like that right before their eyes that what do you do to to leave such a member such a mark on those who are closest to you and yet we see just the opposite where we would have done something to kind of inspire them through this great talk or some miracle we see just the opposite And Jesus, no awe-inspiring miracle. Instead, he washes their feet. It's his last act of service, really, to his disciples. And so the message today is called Humble Yourself. We'll be in John 13. I spoke out of John 13 two weeks ago. We're going to take the same passage, approach it from a slightly different uh, angle, and see what we can pull out uh, about this idea of humbling ourselves. As we read the passage, it's important to know that uh, it was customary uh, to wash your feet before a meal. Back then, you would uh, not really sit in chairs, but you would sit on the floor, recline on the floor, with the food in front of you, meaning the distance from nose to feet has been greatly reduced. And you're walking around on dirty streets without the uh, 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 benefit of public sewage. And, uh, you know, who knows what you were walking through. You didn't have closed closed uh, toes shoes, but instead you 're walking around in sandals, and we 've been in places in India where they didn 't have a sewage system, but there was just a little trough off to the side of each road dirt road that carried human waste out into the the large canals uh, that was also their bathing water, which is a little ironic and, uh, and when it would rain, this, these little troughs would flood, and you would w- walk through the stuff and Uh, you know this is kind of what this was like and so when foot washing was was not just a suggestion it was the norm because you didn't want someone's smelly stinky sweaty toe jam heel cracked foot in your face while you're eating on the floor and so this was an important part of of the the culture you would either wash your own feet or, if it was possible, there would be a servant who would, hire or who would be hired to wash your feet for you. As we know from other Gospels, there was uh, a distraction that was taking place and that the disciples were arguing among themselves who was the greatest. They got in this conflict about who would be upper management when Jesus was gone. Quite possibly what sparked this idea of this conflict was who was going to wash whose feet. If you can imagine, there's 12 of them with Jesus in a room and they're all looking at one another wondering who is the low man on the totem pole and who's going to get down on on their knees and start to wash the dirt and the grime and the filth off of the, the other person's foot and they start to build a case for one another as to who is the greatest among them. And remember, it's less than 24 hours, Jesus would be in the tomb and they're arguing over who is highest on the totem pole, who is upper management. If there was ever a time that you would think the disciples should humble themselves, this should be it. If there was ever a time for them to tend to the needs of Jesus, you would think this is their moment. Forget about posturing, forget about uh, uh, where you land on the corporate ladder, it's time to tend to Jesus who is going towards not just his death, but crucifixion with this background in mind, we're going to jump into our text and see what God has to say to us today. In John 13, if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. If you have it on your phone, I encourage you to flip there. Uh, As always, uh, I encourage you to bring your Bibles as as we dig into God's Word today. So Lord, as we look at this passage on humbling ourselves, would you speak to us specifically? Would it not just be an idea that we study, but would it be something that we apply to our own lives? Would you uh, reveal whatever it is that needs to be exposed to us. Would you examine our hearts, and would you shine a light on any place of darkness? And would we just before you now say, "Come and speak to me." Would you show yourself, enlighten me in areas that maybe I'm in darkness? Would your light shine upon me—the light of your truth, the light of your wisdom, the light of your word. We invite your presence, Holy Spirit, upon us to move in whichever way you desire to move among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start by asking you a question. How do you respond when life is difficult? How do you respond when you're in a challenge, when, you're, when you are in a pinch or a bind or a confrontation, when things are not turning out as you would have hoped, when uh, 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 life is kind of falling apart around you? How do you respond when you've been wronged or when you've been offended or when someone's hurt you? How, how do you respond in that moment? And I think there's five ways that we can respond. The first one is that maybe we can fight. And maybe that's your method of operation, that when something goes wrong or you're offended or you're faced with some type of conflict, your your solution is that you will muscle your way out of it and you'll keep punching until someone surrenders. Or maybe your solution is number two. Maybe you flee and you kind of head for the hills, which is Quite possibly not where God wants you, but maybe you withdraw, and you detach, and you cut ties, and you block them from Facebook, or you change your phone number, or you go to a different job, or a different city, or a different church, and and, and you just kind of pull back. But what we begin to learn over life, as life progresses, is that oftentimes the conflict that we uh, encounter is not always just about the other person, it's also about the person that we see in the mirror. Maybe your third solution to conflict is that you give up and you just kind of lay down and you surrender and you just die, you know, take me out. Maybe your solution is you talk your way out and you present your case and you prove that you're right and you prove that they're wrong and, and you keep hammering until they are willing to surrender. Or maybe our last option is the one that we need to take a greater approach to or embrace and that is get low and humble yourself. And we're about to see Jesus faced with conflict. We're about to see how he responds when life presented a conflict and a challenge and he was in a pinch. John 13, 1. We'll start in the first verse. Humble yourself. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So when we're talking about humble yourself, here's my first uh, challenge to us. That we would humble ourselves when it's hardest to love, And we're going to see Jesus humble himself when it was hardest to love. Now, this uh, John starts off by telling us that his hour had come, meaning Jesus was fully aware of what was about to happen. Nothing caught him off guard. The cross was, uh, was close, his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. Uh, he would be soon knowing that he would be bearing the sins of the world, every one of them, and he was fully aware of it. That every selfish deed, every cruel joke ever played, every form of racism and intolerance and bigotry and every evil act of rape and every murder and every lie ever spoken, every wrong ever perpetrated would be placed upon him. And he was fully aware that his hour has come. He knew what he was about to go through. All of it placed upon him until the Father withdrew his presence. We, We often may wonder, Why Jesus cried out to God, Father, why have you forsaken me? Or why have you pulled away from me? Well, the Bible is clear that the wages, the penalty of sin is death. It's spiritual separation, spiritual death, spiritual separation from God. And it is in this moment that the sins of the world are placed upon Jesus that God separates himself because that's the penalty of sin, God separates himself from the Son and Far more painful than the the thorns and the nails and the beating was the tearing of the father withdrawing himself from the son. And Jesus cries out, why have you left me? It's the separation. It's the penalty of sin, separation from God. One day we will stand before him in judgment and, and some will be separated from God for eternity. The cross is Jesus stepping in, taking that separation for us, that we would not have to endure that penalty or that payment for sin. All of this is in his future. Jesus is contemplating it. He, he, he knows what's about to happen, and you would hope after three years, the disciples would rally around Jesus to support him. You would hope that someone would get up and tend to the needs of Jesus and comfort him. It'd be like, John, stop taking notes for your book and and go be with the man who is about to, to go to death for you and everyone else in the world. Look at, as we continue in verse 2. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. New Living says he loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the end. The very end I, I want us to just to focus on that, that little phrase, "He loved them to the end." And as I'm speaking, I want you to just kind of just under your breath, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you about that phrase, "He loved them to the end." He's, he's, he's going towards his, his, his death. And the disciples are completely ignoring him. It would be like you gathering your family and you're on your deathbed and you have final uh, parting words and they're arguing about who gets the television. And you're like, "Uh, I only got a couple hours left here. And so this is the the scenario. No one would have blamed Jesus if he kind of went off on these guys, right? Right? I mean, it could have been a really, after all that I've done for you, after all that we've been through, this is how you're going to treat me. No one will support me. You're only fixated on on your own desires and your own needs. This is how you repay me for three years of doing life with you guys. This is how you repay me for having a front row seat at the greatest miracles that anyone has ever seen. I can see him saying, Peter, I healed your mother-in-law and this is how you repay me. And Peter, like, oh, I actually was meaning to talk to you about that one. I thought maybe that was one miracle that didn't need to happen. But, you know, regardless, he'd be like, John, you were part of my inner three. You saw and heard things that others did not. Hey, Bartholomew, you're lucky to even be here with a name like Bartholomew. Who names their kid Bartholomew? I mean, you could see him, if if he would have gone after these guys with hours left to life and they're ignoring him, no one would have said, Jesus, you really weren't justified in that. Everyone would have been like, yeah, yeah, you should have gave him a tongue lashing at at, at least. And this is where we, we find Jesus. In a situation, drawing near to death, his disciples ignoring his needs, and what we see is this little phrase that John interjects and he says, he loved us right until the very end. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, I've I've loved you this far and I can't quit now. And even though you're ignoring my needs and and, and the deeper story, the bigger story that's about to occur, I I can't just kind of abandon you. And even even though you're being completely selfish and and unreasonable, I I can't withdraw my love from you. Humble yourself even when it's hardest to love. Was it hard to love the disciples at this point? If it was you and if it was your family and they're treating you that way hours before your death, I would guarantee you they'd be very difficult to love at that moment. Choose to love even when someone isn't loving you the way you deserve or the way you think you deserve. Humble yourself. Follow the example of Jesus. The disciples, possibly at their most difficult time to love, ignoring the needs of Jesus. And John says, but he loved us to." The end. As he so often did, he humbled himself and loved them to the end. You you want some good news today? Here's some good news for you Jesus will love you to the end. Even when you are unlovable, even when you are at your worst, even when you're forsaking his needs or his desires or his plan or or, or his, his speaking to you and you're ignoring him, he will love you. He will love us to the end, even when you're difficult to love. Look, others, their love may be fickle and it may ebb like the tide, but his love does not. Which should make us ask the question, why would he love us even when we're at our worst, like the disciples at their worst, and yet he loved them to the end? Why would he love us when we treat him just as the disciples are treating him at this moment? And really the answer is, because he chooses to love. That really, it's not even about you. It's not even about me. It's not even about what I bring to the table. It's not even about what I offer back to him. It's just that God, in his mercy, in his grace, and being love as part of his being, he simply chooses to adorn us with a love that is relentless. Even when I doubt, and even when I fail, and even when I am faithless, he loves me us to the end i love the example of hosea let me have the band come up hosea was a prophet in the old testament his is a difficult story on one hand and a remarkable image of god's faithful love on the other and god instructs hosea to do something quite strange he tells him to go and take for yourself a prostitute the scriptures in many texts says go and take yourself a wife of whoredom And so Hosea marries a prostitute, and God says, no matter how many times she is unfaithful to you, God instructs him, you will take her back. He says, Hosea, I want you to love her regardless of how she loves you. I want you to be faithful to her regardless of how she is not faithful to you. Hosea, I want you to give yourself to a woman, hear me on this, I want you to give yourself to a woman who will whore around on you because you will reflect how I have given myself to a people who whore around on me. And Hosea, regardless of how many times they come to me and then they leave me, regardless of how many times they commit spiritual adultery on me and they, they, they come back just to pack their bags and run after the new temptation, and regardless of how many times they are unfaithful to me, Hosea, through your faithful love to a woman who is unfaithful to you, you will declare to this world this unimmovable truth that I don't leave those I love. And I love that little passage where John says, he loved us right to the end. Man, we screwed up and we messed up. And how many times did he tell us, how long do I have to be with you? And how many times do I have to ask you? And how, how, how many times, do, oh, ye of little faith, and boys, you're missing in again. And even at hours before his death, we're totally ignoring him. And we're arguing about who's the greatest. And yet, Jesus loved us to the end. Can I... Just speak these words over you that they may settle upon your soul. He will love you to the end. It's a love that you can't mess up. Because ultimately it's not even about you. It's just a God that says, I'll love you even when you're at your worst. And I will love you to the very end. We're going to worship a little bit. And I pray that those words would just kind of settle over you. And maybe you will receive the love, the forgiveness, and mercy of God. Maybe there's something in your life that, that keeps you from embracing that love. Maybe it's something that's in your mind that keeps coming up. Every time you think about the love of God and you think, yeah, but my past. And would, would you just let, let God just dissolve that? And would you hear the words of the, the Spirit of God spoken over you? I will love you to the very end. The best thing Best thing that we could ever give you as a church, I could ever give you as a pastor, is to discover that kind of love that is being offered to you. Man, don't stiff arm it, don't reject it, don't you know, play the macho card of I'm a guy. Don't 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 let the enemy lie that you've done too much or that you've sinned too much or that you've wandered too many times. And man, this is he loves us to the end let's not get to the end of our life to discover that we've missed a love that was waiting our entire life that little passage that john interjects that he loved us even to the end so humble yourself when it is hardest to love who is it in your life that when it's hardest to love Follow the example of Jesus. Humble yourself. Number two, humble yourself when it's personal and when it's painful. John 13, 2 says this. He says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, right, Judas is the one who deceives or who um, betrays Jesus, Simon's son to betray him. So a few hours have left. Uh, before creation dis, uh, betrays its creator. Now, think about betrayal. Possibly nothing is more painful, nothing is more personal than when you've given yourself to someone and they turn against you. And when you've given yourself, your heart to them, your trust to them, and, and, and they betray you, they stab you in the back, they spread lies about you, nothing more painful. A secret meeting at work and the office staff and everyone's there but you after you've given 20 years and you find out that you're on the outs. Or the person who said, I do forever, now it says forever's forever's too long. Or a best friend who spreads lies and sells you out. Nothing is more personal and more painful than betrayal. And what's interesting, this isn't an I didn't see that coming moment. Jesus was fully aware that he was about to be betrayed, and he was fully aware that the person who was about to betray him was in the room, personal, and it's painful, and he's just feet away from the person who would ultimately sell him out. I mean, this is personal, right? I mean, he created Judas. He knit him together, fearfully and wonderfully made. He did life with him for three years. The guy had a front row seat to the, the greatest miracles ever. He ate with him. He slept under the same roof. He slept in the same camp. And now is about to betray not just a guy, but God in the flesh. Listen, no one, at least me, would blame Jesus if he unleashed holy fury on Judas, Right? sitting at the dinner table and saying, Jesus, you like the fruit? Oh, it's about to get a lot better, right? No one would have said, Jesus, really? I mean, it's what we all would have done. It's what we all root for in the movies. When it comes to that moment, the guy discovers that where the mole is and who's been selling him out. And No one would have thought any less of Jesus. Kind of do a face melt, Raiders of the Lost Ark type miracle. Judas just, right? No one would have blamed him. He deserves it. And how many times have we justified our actions with that little phrase, They deserve it. So what does Jesus do? When betrayal is most personal and most painful, he humbles himself and he washes the feet of the guy who's about to sell him out. Imagine what it had to be like. What was it like to have God on his knees looking up at you as you're about to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver? What was it like for Jesus to look into the eyes of the very man that he created, who we could build a case that knew Judas even before Judas was Judas, even before he was born, before time even was called time, that he already had this relationship with us, his creation. What was it like for Jesus to kneel and to look into his eyes saying, I know what you're about to do? What was it like for Judas to begin to know that Jesus knows? And yet he's still washing his feet. What, what, what was it like to kneel before you betrayer and wash the grime and the dirt and the fecal matter and whatever else was on? What was it like to wash it off of his feet? I would have found it understandable if Jesus said, I'm going to pass on you and I'll get back to you and tell you why. And yet we have every indication that he washed his feet. Hey, where in your life has there been betrayal? Where in your life is it personal and is it painful? And Jesus left us an example to say, look, even when it's personal and when it's painful, follow my lead, follow my example, and humble yourself. Number three, get the big picture. John thirteen three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. It's interesting when you ask, well, how how was Jesus able to do this and and wash the feet of the guy who was about to betray him? And I think part of him is Jesus understood his authority and he understood his identity. And that that little passage, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that's his authority, and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, that was his identity. And I think in a very real sense, Jesus could say, Judas, you don't define me. And Judas, you may think you're getting one over on me, but that's not how this works. You don't define me, you don't define my future, you don't define my purpose, and therefore I can step in to do something that others would not because I understand my authority and I understand my identity. How can you humble yourself? Get the big picture. Hey, who ultimately holds the authority in your life? Who ultimately is writing the chapter, the next chapter of your life? Where does your identity lie? Listen, that person who got one over on you, they don't define you. That person who lied to you and cheated or took something from you, they don't determine your future. Where is your authority and where does your identity lie? The person who betrayed you, they don't hold the pen to your future. God writes that chapter. The person who spread the rumors, they don't define you. Get the big picture. Know your authority. Know your identity that you came from and you're going back to the Father and you can step in to say, you know what? I am going to put down my flesh and live out of my spirit because ultimately you don't define me that's that's strong right there number four how to humble ourselves understand that humility requires action john 13 4 and 5 jesus rose from supper matter of fact go back to that previous slide there so we can get that whole thing would you so uh, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, next slide. There rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. Hey, humility requires action, right? It's a do thing. It's not just think about being humble. It's not just, well, I'm kind of ruminating on on what it would feel like to be humble. No, humility is a do thing. The Bible often doesn't tell us to be humble. It says to humble yourself. It says make the decision and humble yourself. Get low, place someone else above you, and humble yourself. Forget about your feelings. Let your spirit rule over your flesh and do it. So look what he did. Look at the action here. He rose, right? Somebody had to get up from the table, so Jesus rose from the table. He laid aside his outer garments. Really, that's taking off his, his uh, authority as a teacher or a rabbi in that culture. And he picked up a towel. That's the, 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 the symbol of a servant. Tied it around his waist. In other words, he's putting on the garment of a servant. He's getting clothed for work. This wasn't glory work. This wasn't just a little, pour a little water on your foot and a symbolic washing. Now, how involved was he going between the toes? I don't know. But this wasn't just a little, you know, dash of water and say, hey, how how was that? He's washing their feet, hands to stinky, smelly feet. Tie the towel around his waist. We see the actions. Humility requires action. It's a do thing. Don't delay in it. Make the decision. You receive a poor performance at work or you're passed over for, for a promotion, humble yourself. Go and ask, what can I do better? Humble yourself. When a coworker cuts corners or snags a deal, humble yourself. When something is taken that rightfully belongs to you, humble yourself. When a friend betrays you, humble yourself. When your life isn't turning out the way you wanted, humble yourself before God. When you feel crushed under the weight of a crisis or a deep, bitter disappointment, humble yourself. When it's hard to love those closest to you, Humble yourself. It's a do thing. Let me give you just a couple quick ways that we can, uh, practical ways to show humility. First one is ask for help. You know, tell someone you need their input, you need their advice, you need their help. Number two, how about this one? Apologize first. That's a way that you can demonstrate humility. Don't wait for the other person. Don't wait for the other person to even be worthy of your apology. Listen, as Christians, we should be getting really good at being the first to apologize. You should be getting really good at being the first to apologize. In your family, in your workplace, in your school, in your marriage. Be the first to apologize. Just do it. With no conditions. Not, hey, I'm sorry if, I'm sorry that you took it this. No, I'm sorry that you felt feelings I never wanted you to feel, and I'm sorry. That's humility. What about this one? Admit that you have a problem. There is no telling the relief that we can bring to our families by just saying, I realize and I'm speaking it out that I have a problem and I need to get help. It's humility. All right, we've got to keep moving on, running out of time here. Next one. Uh, Number five, don't debate. John 13, 6 and 7. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, You know, Peter, you, you know, he's prone to outbursts. And he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, he kind of wants to debate Jesus, and watch what happens. Verse 7. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not, now under, you do not understand now, but you, afterwards you will understand now. I'd like to think that we would all be satisfied with that answer, but Peter wasn't satisfied with that answer. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now, this is the same Peter that kind of rebuked Jesus once, same Peter that Paul had to rebuke publicly, that had this confrontation. Peter was always getting himself into trouble. And so now he tells Jesus, look, you can wash everyone else's feet, but you're not touching my feet. Now. Wanted to kind of have this debate. Jesus was not interested in a a debate. And notice what Jesus says. He says, "Hey, listen. If I don't wash you, then you have no share with me." Notice Peter says, "Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head." Peter's like, "Hey, you will never touch my feet. Can I have a bath?" Right? It's just like this, this, this this swing. But he's kind of wanting to debate, and Jesus is like, "No, there's no debating." I'm humbling myself. I'm washing your feet. And if you don't want a part of it, you can step aside. But I'm not debating you. I am humbling myself to serve you. Don't debate. Next, number six, don't pretend, don't fake it. Jesus said to him, verse 10 and 11, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now he says, and you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you is clean. In other words, he says, look, I'm going to wash someone's feet, but I'm not stupid. I know what's going on. I'm not even faking it. I'm not putting on a false smile. I am fully aware of what's taking place. This isn't, I'm going to do this just because I want other people to, to kind of think that I'm humbling myself. Hey, man, if you're going to humble yourself, then do it. Don't fake it. It's not for other people to see. It's not for other people to notice. It's between you and God. Don't fake it. Jesus wasn't washing his feet because he was afraid of conflict. He, he, was, he was just humbling himself because that's what he's, how he's lived his life, preferring the needs of others even over himself. He knew everything that was about to happen. He could have called down a heavenly host of angels and wiped him out. That's not what he chose to do. Understand that humility is not groveling. It's not asking someone to love you, need me, want me. That's not what humility is. Humility is not enabling, you're not enabling someone to sin. Humility is not manipulating, it's not I did this for you and now you should do this for me. Humility is just saying, I'm going to put you above myself and I'm going to get low and I'm going to humble myself because I'm called to live in such a manner. Here's the next one. Uh, where we at here? What was the last one? So next one is uh, Set the example. John thirteen twelve 12-14. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed uh, his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, meaning, hey, I'm the Messiah, teacher, Lord, well done, I'm all those things. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He doesn't even mention himself. We would think that he would say that if I wash your feet, you should in turn wash my feet. But instead he says, look, set the example. I'm doing this because I want you to live in the same manner. And if I washed your feet, I expect you to go out and wash one another's feet. What does that mean? It means what do you do when you're the most powerful person in the room? You humble yourself. That's what Jesus did. What do you do when you're the smartest person in the room? You humble yourself. What do you do when you're the most talented person in the room? You humble yourself. What do you do when you're the strongest person in your family? You humble yourself. That's the kingdom. It's upside down. Jesus said, look, if you want to be great, then be a servant. If you want to succeed and live a life that is meaningful, then pick up a towel. That's the kingdom of God. And it's different from every other culture, every other corporation of what they would tell you. Right? You you, you you rise the corporate ladder and you get the best parking and you get the best office. And Jesus says, Hey, you want you want to be great in the kingdom? You're going to pick up a towel and you're going to wash the filth off of someone's feet. He says, That's my kingdom. He's brilliant in how he even approaches all of this. And so he says, Look, you set the example when you're the most powerful person in the room. When you're the highest paid man in the room. Humble yourself. Highest paid woman in the room, humble yourself. When you're the highest manager in the room, humble yourself. And then the last one, last two. It's not about you. John 13, 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's, he's ultimately saying, look, 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 look. This really isn't even about you, right? You're not greater than me. There's only one that is great, and that is God. So he's saying, look, your life, my life, please hear me. One day we're going to stand before God and we're going to realize that it really was never about me, was it? And he's going to be like, no, it really wasn't. I blessed you and I wanted good things for you, but ultimately it was never really about you. And so humble yourself. Why? Because it's not about you. Just l- live a life with Jesus living through you. And then the last one is knowing without doing is meaningless. Jesus ends this. Brilliant passage, and he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And others said, listen, hey, knowing means nothing. Big deal. You're blessed when you do them. In other words, if this message does not result in us humbling ourselves in whatever area is needed, then Jesus would say, big deal, you came to church. Blessed are those who do it. Hey, some of the best words that we can say to the people that we came with today or the people that we go home to is say to the person that you're closest to is God spoke to me today. And I'm sorry for the mess that I've caused because of my pride. And I've blown it, but God spoke to me today and I'm listening and apologize to your children that, that God spoke to me today about what I was doing and I, and I, was, I was treating you wrong in this and I was, I was lording authority over you and God spoke to me and daddy's listening, mommy's listening and I was wrong and I, and I apologize. Go into work tomorrow, a different person until someone says, hey man, what's gotten into you? And you can say, you know what, I, I was wrong. I wasn't living a humble life and God spoke to me and from this day forward, I want to live a life of humility. See, it's not just that Jesus washed their feet. It was when he did it. He's hours away from death, and he still preferred others over himself. What an incredible message for us to grasp hold of. It wasn't that he just did it, you know, I call you up on stage and I wash your feet. Look, it might be a little embarrassing for me, a little embarrassing for you, but ultimately, it doesn't mean that much. It's, he's, he's hours away from death He's being ignored, and he gets out the basin, and he says, I will wash your feet. Jesus is the highest, and he got the lowest. Humble yourself. Today, for all of us, stop thinking that you're the person who knows and start seeing yourself as a person who's learning. Stop thinking that you're the person who's arrived and start seeing yourself as a person who is growing. Stop thinking of yourself as a person who is up here, and people need to get to you and start seeing yourself as the person who is down here. Humble yourself. Now we're going to take just a moment uh, and I want you to ask God where in your life or with who in your life do you need to put this into practice? Because blessed are those who do it. Let's take a moment. You just ask that God would speak to you. Hey, and if your first response was, yeah, but, "Mm," you're doing it wrong. If your first thought was, they don't deserve it, you're doing it wrong. It's not about you, it's not really about them. It's about positioning yourself in humility, because Jesus set the example, and we are a follower of Jesus. So speak to us, Lord, what does that look like in our lives? Who is it? Give us a name, give us a face, give us a situation, and then give us a plan. Today, Lord, I pray for our church and whoever you brought to mind, whatever situation you brought to mind, that we would step out in faithfulness and just do it, to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. Let us be people of humility this week. Remind us as situations arise to be people of humility. Humility. And let us today leave here with a greater grasp, a greater understanding of your great love for us and that you love us to the end. It's the greatest thing we could take away from today. The love of God, how rich and how full. and strong. I bless you, church, today. I bless you to experience God, to experience the Holy Spirit in your life, to experience the love of God and the mercy of God, the kindness of God. I bless you today to walk in his presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, church, if you'd like prayer, make sure you come up and let someone pray for you. Just don't bolt out. Give us five minutes if there's something that we can pray for you over. Remember to keep praying for the church as we continue with the negotiations, meeting with architects over this building space up fresh and easy. And uh, God bless you guys. I hope to see you back next week. Have a great week. Bless you.